you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I have a, a student in one of my classes this semester who is from Brooklyn. And he told a rather distressing tale about his family during the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. He said his mother worked in an office building just a couple blocks down from the Twin Towers when the attack occurred. And when the first plane hit, she didn't know what to make of the noise. But then news traveled fast, the second plane hit, and they knew that they were in a serious event. They were kind of dug in. Because of the devastation, communication with the outside world was cut off. No cell phones, no landlines were working. And for three days, she was stuck in this office building with no communication to her outside family. They were left with hoping, wondering if they'd ever see her again. Now, they were eventually reunited, and my student now has quite a story to tell about that event. Three days to wonder. Three days hoping that the worst that they imagined would not be true. Now, such a story is very heartwarming because it has a good ending. And the story is believable because you have firsthand testimony. There is another story of somebody who was hid away for three days. But instead of an office building, he was in a grave. Instead of working, this person was actually dead for three days. After suffering excruciating torture at the hands of soldiers who were experts in crucifixion. Now, we're told that his death from medical professionals, his death could have been from several causes. He lost tremendous amounts of blood from the scourging, from the beatings, from the nails in his hands and his feet. He could have suffocated trying to lift with his hands that were nailed upon his feet that were nailed. He could have expired having his heart pierced by a spear. He could have died of shock. Pathologist Dr. William Edwards wrote for the Mayo Clinic the following. The weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Now that information confirms what the New Testament has told us, that Jesus did actually die. Most people would believe that, but can we truly believe that he spent three days in a grave and then rose again? The biblical record says this in Matthew 28, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen. Call it irony, but Easter today is on April Fool's Day. Is the resurrection, in fact, a myth propped up by religious zealots eager to capitalize on a, on a naive public? 
you'll get no denial from me that there certainly are religious wingnuts and that people can be very naive. But investigating the evidence concerning a resurrection is going to take busting through old biases to get to the truth, at least for many people. See, some people reject any idea of a supernatural. Uh, They reject the existence of God. They reject a resurrection. And everyone, of course, is going to claim that evidence is on their side, atheists and theists alike. And none of us wants to admit that we have an agenda according to the things that we believe. But historical facts can be pesky things, can they not? Especially when they challenge our our worldview assumptions. Before we consider the evidence for the resurrection, one has to ask him or herself if they would be willing to accept the ramifications of a risen Christ if it were indeed true. See, it's upon that premise that I think most people turn away from the idea of the risen Christ. Because you see, if Christ really did rise from the dead, then that obviously implies that there is a God. That obviously implies that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so the most honest response to that would be, I mean, he came to die for sin, so I have to admit my sin and bow my knee before him. That would be the most honest response. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. It is not that easy to believe all of this because presumptions die hard, do they not? And I think we're being naive if we think if all of the evidence was just lined out, then people would believe it. That's simply not so. And it was the same in Jesus' day, was it not? There were hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ. They talked to him. They, they touched him. The Romans did not want the trouble of Jesus walking around, which is why they approved of crucifying him in the first place. The majority of Jews could not stand the prospect of a resurrected Christ. It did not fit their conceptions of a Messiah to have one dying on a cross. The Romans and Jews would have loved to see Jesus stay in the grave. And none of the disciples expected him to rise from the dead. That's the amazing thing. And they certainly didn't have the courage to come against the Roman centurions who were guarding the tomb. They could not outwit the Roman guards. That's ridiculous. One of the most fascinating stories to me about our bias we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is the idea of two disciples walking along a road after the resurrection, Jesus comes and walks with them, and they couldn't recognize him. Our worldview presumptions can blind us to what is right in front of us. They obviously did not expect a resurrection. Presumptions die hard. Now, I think that there's a healthy skepticism that we ought to have for kind of, you know, claims that are out of the ordinary, and certainly the resurrection fits that bill. But let us recount some of the details. Jesus died and was buried. The tomb was found 
empty. And there are varying accounts from numerous individuals who saw Jesus alive after he died on the cross. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the inner, inner circle of disciples known as the Twelve. Then he appeared to a group of 500 people at once. Then to his younger brother, James, who up at that time was apparently not even a believer. Then to all of the apostles. And finally, Paul adds, he appeared also to me at a time when Paul was still a persecutor of the early church. And by the way, more than one source, extra-biblical sources, testify to these appearances. Even the skeptical German New Testament critic Gerd Ludemann concludes, I quote, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, when I told you the story of my student's mother, I would doubt that there are many in this room that would question the truthfulness of that story. Chances are, none of you have even met my student friend. I mean, I took his word, and I'm assuming you at least half believe what I'm saying up here right now, that I'm describing the story accurately. But when it comes to the resurrection, we have record in writing of several hundred witnesses to the risen Christ. And again, many of those eyewitnesses, most did not expect the risen Christ. It's not, they were, it's not like they were hoping for it. And despite these issues, the disciples and others came to firmly believe the resurrection. Because they saw him, they felt him, they, they heard the risen Christ. And obviously, pundits have tried to discount the facts. They've tried to mythologize Jesus rising from the dead, so it's kind of relegated to, you know, subjective religious oblivion, oblivion, and you now have the faux dichotomy between faith and science. They tried to discredit the testimony of the Gospels and the eyewitnesses. They try to discredit the testimony of the New Testament, and yet the bibliographical evidence is as good for the New Testament than any other book of antiquity. Academia throws Jesus off as just another evolutionary tactic to help you know, humans deal with the grim fate of death. So discarding the resurrection is nothing new. Some who saw Jesus and heard firsthand from the witnesses, they too chose not to believe it, even though it was right there in front of them. Because you see, it would cost them something. It, it might cost them a reputation to uphold since they'd made it known they don't believe in the supernatural. It would cost them control of their lives because it might move them to trust in God. It would cost them pride in admitting their sin. Some can't acknowledge the facts of the resurrection because the implications are far too costly. 
The fact is, even religious people are irritated by the resurrection. In Acts 4, it tells us this, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, a religious group, came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And some mocked the idea of a resurrection. When Peter was talking to some of academia, it tells us this, as some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I'm willing to guess that there's probably some here that might believe that it's just going to cost too much to believe in the resurrection. Allow me to give you the testimony of others who believed the resurrection and found things that, that no money could buy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again is a way of saying a new life, a change of hearts, a change in our purpose and direction. Now, many people that I meet truly desire a real change in their life. Some people I, I talk to have no hope beyond the grave. They, they have no lasting purpose for why they're here on earth. But listen, because Jesus rose from the grave, Hope, purpose, the change we truly need, they're not only possible, but I want to declare to you, they are available to you today. Tim Weiner is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and author who's worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times. He spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. He's been a uh, correspondent in several different countries, and he called the uh, CIA one day because he was going to Afghanistan as a foreign correspondent, and he wanted to go and get some information from the CIA to their public information office because they had people that would often give foreign correspondents a country briefing to where they could learn many things about that country. So he calls the CIA. He asked for that office, public information office. He told them what he wanted, and his answer that he got was, absolutely not, and they hung up the phone. <laughs> Thanks for that. Absolutely not. So, Weiner goes to his assignment, spends time in Afghanistan. He then comes back to the United States. He's not in Washington, D.C. for 24 hours, and he gets a call from the public information office of the CIA. And this time they were friendly. And they said, why don't you come over to the office for that briefing? So off he went to the CIA headquarters, about 10 miles from the White House. He goes through several checkpoints, and he, he gets to the lobby, and 
There in the lobby, he says he got hooked because there he saw on the, in the CIA lobby a Bible verse. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He goes on to the seventh floor where the executive suites were. And there were four CIA officers. They were there for what he thought was his briefing. But it became apparent very quickly that these four CIA officers were only after one thing. These were the men who were supposed to be experts in Afghanistan. And the one thing that they wanted to know out of Tim Weiner was this. What is it like over there in Afghanistan? Not a one of them had ever been to Afghanistan. And Weiner said he left that meeting deciding that he would devote the rest of his life reporting about the CIA. I find it fascinating that someone would be called an expert about a country having never been to that country. They might might have certain facts about the country, but they have no intimate, actual experience with that country. This week, I had lunch with a student from Yemen, a committed Muslim, and it was a fascinating lunch. He was a wonderful man. I enjoyed getting to know him. And I realized, I know nothing about Yemen. I would one day maybe like to go to be with his family, but I know nothing about it. Even though I could have spent three or four more hours with him getting to know about the country, I have no intimate, actual knowledge. It strikes me that there are many people like this. They hold out a few assumptions about Christianity and Christ, and they express great certainty that a resurrection did not occur. And the vast majority have never even investigated the best evidence for the resurrection. They have never even talked face-to-face with a serious-minded Christian who they might respect to have have an honest conversation. And yet they're an expert. They are certain. Maybe they're afraid of what they will find. But my dear friend, the truth of the matter is The stakes are too high and the evidence too convincing to ignore that Jesus rose from the dead. We just can't dismiss it. He offers new life. And these claims, they're not naked assertions, but they're backed, the resurrection is, by eyewitness testimony. So I'm inviting you not just to investigate, but ask God to to visit with you so that you might have a, a firsthand experience of what it's like 
to know the God of heaven, to have hope, to have meaning, to confess your sin to a holy God and lean upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins from that holy God. You shall know the truth and the truth can set you free. I'm going to ask one of my friends to come up here, Tyler, come on up, to talk about how he came to acknowledge this truth. First of all, you've had nothing go on, have you, lately? So it's amazing that he's here because his wife just had a baby last night. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. I think it's on, is it? Yeah, you're on. Never thought I'd say this, but we have a daughter of uh, four boys and one girl, and uh, Poppy Louise was born last night at 7 p.m., so came to church this morning because I figured that'd be the only place I could get some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, he's done with his testimony. That was wonderful, wasn't it? Mm. Tyler, I know that you've had quite a circuitous path when it comes to your relationship with Christ. And I just want you to share a little bit about some of the things that alerted you early in life to your need, need of Christ. Well, um, I think when I came to Christ, I was 22 years old. At that time in my life, I think my life uh, kind of resembled more of a prodigal son type narrative. I grew up in a small town. Um, where religion um, was kind of a cultural thing, not to say that there's not genuine believers in small towns. But my experience was I was brought up in a denomination that emphasized baptism heavily, and I thought that, you know, baptism saved you. And so, you know, when I was in junior high, I made a decision to get baptized, and I thought, you know, once, once you're dunked, you're in, um, and uh, kind of like a fire insurance policy. Well, <clears throat> the rest of that story, um, like I said earlier, took more of a prodigal son type narrative where I experienced all the world had to offer. Um, so I was heavily uh, drinking, drugs, you know, sex, all that stuff. Continued in my college years. Um, and it got to a point where it got old. Um, I lived in a loft downtown, and we just went out every night. It was kind of the culture, and it was the same people, same thing every week. Notice my relationships were shallow. They didn't have the depth that I would have liked, and I was just kind of on this path to nowhere, kind of bottomed out. What was the turning point? What was well, it that attracted you to Christ? There was a group of believers on campus, Missouri State, um, and I, I was attracted to them because of their relationships that they had. Um, they were genuine. They were real, authentic. And I knew that there was something different about this group of people, and, and I wanted that. And uh, it was a, a weekend where um, students went home. I think it was spring break or something like that. Nobody was at campus. Uh, Nikki Jones... Um, invited me to come home with her 
St. Joseph, Missouri. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I wasn't doing anything that weekend. Well, her parents, her dad's a pastor, and I didn't know that. <laughs> and so I'm spending the night at a pastor's girl's house in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, they were praying before their meal, and I was sitting there during the prayer, and I was like, what am I doing here? Well, her parents, before I left, they ended up giving me this Bible 13 years ago. Oh. And uh, there was, when I received it, I was kind of offended at first. You know, I was like, oh, someone giving me a Bible. You know, I know what the Bible says kind of thing. Well, I went home. There was kind of like this, this, this thought that I had. I was like, well, maybe I got to read this, you know, find out if you know, God has a plan you know, for my life. And I went home, and I threw it on my bed, went out to the bar. <laughs> and, um, you know, the scriptures talk about how, you know, the gospel's veiled, how Satan blinds the, the minds. And, and I was at the bar that night, and, and uh, I just felt this conviction, and I felt this veil was lifted. And for the first time, I understood, um, you know, what I was doing, what was going on around me, and, and I, I just knew I had to get out of there. So, um, I just set my drink down, and I was like, you know, guys, I'm going home. And So what actually had you come to the terms of the gospel? Well, and, uh, this part might be hard to get through, but I went home, and uh, my Bible was right there where I left it. And I had asked Daryl what to read, and he said, he said uh, read the gospel to John. And uh, chapter three, sorry, uh, there's this narrative where Jesus is talking uh, to Nicodemus, and he says, unless you're born again, you cannot uh, enter the kingdom, and uh, I read that, and I knew I wasn't, and then he, uh, a couple of verses later, gets repeated again. He's like, don't be surprised, you know, uh, that you've got to be born again. And then a couple of verses later, you know, John three sixteen, 16, uh, it's like whoever believes Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. I knew I didn't have it. And so that night I got down on my knees and uh, confessed my sin and trusted Christ from as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. I don't want a Sunday school answer. What's the real answer? Has there been a change? Without a doubt. You know, ever since that day, I've, all I've wanted to do is tell people about Jesus and how he can save you. And, uh, you know, it's real, it's life. And, uh, he changes your life. Yeah. Amen, brother. I love you. Thank you for sharing that. Let's bow our heads.